The Secret Beneath the Secret, August 10th, 2021. My desk sits in front of a window. Two swallow's nests stick to each of the outside corners of this window enclosure. I watch the birds as I write. They're incredible. Like little arrows, they dive in quick, sharp movements, turning in the air with breathtaking speed. Recently, I discovered babies in the nests, fledglings. They seem to have no fear of me. They peek out of the mouth of the nest with bright eyes and curious, quick tilts to their heads. I've been talking to them, and they seem to enjoy it. They cheep at me, tiny little hellos that pulse from their delicate throats. I know that right now, the world for them is nothing more than what they can see from the small opening of the nest. They can see their cousins across the way in the other nest. They see mom and dad and this strange, large, featherless creature who speaks to them kindly. Soon, though, they will spread their wings. They will migrate all over, darting with sharp twists on unseen currents, experiencing the world in ways I could never imagine. There is so much out there for them to discover. But right now, they're content to cheep softly, to eat from their mother's beak, and to peer out at the big world and the beckoning sky that will soon be their home. They are fragile little things, but then so too are their parents. And so too are we all. It's good to enjoy this time in the nest, I think, because the world is very vast and full of adventure. And once it calls, there's no going back. I met a man. He was very kind. His wife and son were very kind. But I know him. I've met him before many times. Every time he sees me, he looks at me with proprietary eyes and warns me to be careful. I know somehow that he is a man who needs me to be afraid. He needs me to be afraid so he can be my protector. It is the only way he knows how to be useful. He sees threats everywhere and warns me of those threats. He cautions me against predators, dangers, the nameless terrors that await me around every corner. He sees all sorts of ways that I will be harmed unless he is there to protect me. And he lays out these threats like a litany so that I will turn to him in my fear. He needs me desperately to need him. And to need him, I must be kept small and frightened. He doesn't know that I walk this world encased in a spinning field of light. I am inviolable. Wherever I walk, danger melts away. I am not afraid of this world because the universe is my home. I know that nothing can harm me, and I live in this way. I have a sign on my desk. I made it myself. It is very spiritual. It says, fuck fear. I wrote it in pink calligraphy on a piece of cardboard, and I adorned it with squiggly flowers in violet and turquoise and jade. And in those small, dark moments when I forget and fear creeps in, I know I would still never turn to him. He is the one who would hold me captive in my own nightmares, the kind that creep up at 3 a.m. when all of my defenses are released. This man would stoke the flames of my fear. I know this fear. It filters in, 
a cloud over the radiant sun of my joy when I stand on the threshold of freedom. In these times, I turn to no one but God. I turn the lamps of my eyes inward and I let the light enter me. Fuck fear, I whisper, and I leap over the precipice far, far beyond their grasp. These men, I see them, their vast love and devotion. I see this love distorted by their own fear, blinding, nameless. These men don't know what to do with a woman who is unafraid. They fear most, though they would never admit it, a woman who doesn't need them. These men have many fears, but the thing they fear most is becoming redundant, obsolete. A woman unafraid obliterates their very existence. So, they break us down. They break us subtly, and if that doesn't work, they break us with war, with rape, with hitting. They would kill us to prove their point. See, they say, the world is terrifying, dangerous. Here is proof. You need me, they say soothingly afterwards. Turn to me and I will protect you. These men are our greatest threats. The lamps of my eyes turn inward. Take me back to March, a winter that feels so long ago. Back then, I lived in the mountains of Colorado in my own snug little house. There was a fireplace where I would burn wood in the mornings and in the evenings. The fire crackled merrily, filling my house with warmth and the scent of pine smoke. This house had a glass door that opened onto a deck and from the deck I could see the river. I could smell it. It flowed high and crashing in the spring and summer. Now, in March, it was covered over with ice and snow. It seemed to be still, but I knew it was not still. Its movement was a secret whispering beneath the ice. The rushing current flowed unseen, pulsing and silent like the blood of the earth. I had a cat, too, or we had each other. He was unspeakably soft, my cat, a softness that came from another time, another place, somewhere far from this hard, hard world. As I sat in the corner of my couch next to the fire, he would curl up at my hip and purr and purr. Every once in a while, I would sink my hands into his softness as I moved about, doing the things of the day. As I wrote, as I schemed, as I read books or took care of the small things of my house, always he was there, purring, soft, anchoring me to the moment. He was an unspeakable gift of grace, his softness, his purring, the white spot, a diamond ablaze exactly between his emerald eyes. I didn't know at the time, these small moments, how precious they were. In the mountains in March, there was snow everywhere. It capped the jutting peaks and covered the valleys. The snow made everything very quiet and very still. Those days, I would spend hours walking on the paths that spiraled through the woods nearby. The world at that time had decided that we were to be quarantined by fear and sickness. 
So I lived in my own world with my cat and my fire and my small, small house overlooking the silent river. One day in March, so soon after my awakening, I walked the silent snowy paths for hours. When I returned, I spoke to a woman, a seer. She told me that I was a mountain. When you awaken, when you open your eyes, the light floods in. If you are not prepared for it, it can blind you. I was shivering as I spoke to this woman, my face unfamiliar to me. My body was shaking uncontrollably, short-circuited from the influx of light. Now the light floods into my whole body, into the eye of every cell. I had climbed, you see, the mountain of my will. In one unforgettable night, I had thrown myself again and again and again into the teeth of my fears. Inevitably, they knocked me down. I took a breath, picked myself up, and I threw myself back in. I went round after round after round with my fears. They took the form of dragons. I narrowed my eyes. I would conquer these dragons or I would die trying. I was fierce and relentless. I was a warrior. Suddenly, I was fighting not just for me, but for the planet, for the whole world, for humanity. They were all counting on me. I couldn't fail. Again and again and again and again, I went back into the ring. I gathered up lifetimes of fighting, of lonely, relentless, solitary fighting, and I threw myself at these fears. It was all I knew how to do, to fight. My will is a formidable thing, I learned. This fight, it went on for a long, long time. It was only the intervention of another who stopped me. A woman, quiet and present. She looked at me with eyes limpid and clear, pools of love and understanding and forgiveness. She held me soft and undemanding, the hands of a lover, a sister, a friend, a guardian, a mother. She said quietly, you've done it now. Let it go. It is over. I sobbed, exhausted. I failed, I gasped, sick and shaking. I gave all I had and it wasn't enough. But at her gentle urging, I surrendered. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but I did it. And then, when I did, the most incredible thing happened. As I surrendered, so too did the dragons. As I lay back into the softness of her arms, I was lifted into a galaxy of stars, a vast, gentle, powerful river of starlight. I expanded then, and everything I had been fighting against came flooding in. I had been fighting, I realized, to outrun this nameless thing I was too terrified to feel. It was grief, and I fought it because it was immense. It was the grief that I had held at bay ever since I sat on the river outside of my house, a small, white-wrapped form, the unborn child, that had chosen to go far before I was ready to let it. It was that, and it was bigger than that. 
The grief expanded as I expanded, you see. It became suddenly the grief of every mother who has ever lost a child. The grief was a tsunami, a tidal wave. It was a vast force, but it was soft too. It was as soft as my cat's fur, and it was so massive that it erased me. I couldn't feel it and hold on to myself, so I let it overtake me. I let it wash me into the vastness of the stars. I thought all my life that I needed to climb mountains, to conquer them, but that was just my smallness, the little ant that was me trying to stand somewhere so it could feel big, the little ant that needed something to do, the little ant that needed something, anything, to distract it from the force that it could sense was waiting just on the other side of stillness. This ant knew that the nameless force would obliterate it, so it kept busy, exhausting itself, knowing it couldn't stop, not for one second. In that ceremony of my awakening, the ant washed away. It died and its little bones became subsumed into the mountain. So it became the mountain, just as I had. I saw, in fact, that I had been the mountain all along. I know it now. I know it finally, today. I have lived in, on, and around mountains. The little ant that was me climbed them in all seasons, in all weather, on all sorts of contraptions. I have felt everything they have to offer. Fear, exhilaration, exhaustion, despair, frustration, resolution, triumph, hollowness, disappointment, pain, wonder, awe. I have loved and hated them, these mountains. But now I am the mountain, and all else has fallen away. When you become the mountain, you must accept that you are massive. You are exposed. You can be seen for miles. You beckon to the wild, wondering hearts of all who behold you. What would it be like, you seem to say by your very presence, to stand at the top of me? What would it be like to know me? As the mountain, you become the target of all of their feelings. The ones that climb you, the ones that don't, the ones that succeed, the ones that fail. You stand as a challenge to all who behold you, whether they choose to walk your paths or not. Those that don't, they cry, I am weak, I am afraid, I don't need to climb a dumb mountain and they spend their lives wondering what they missed. Those that do embark declare, I am strong, I am determined, I am an adventurer, I am better than those who are too spiritless to try. Regardless, each of them who beholds the mountain sees it as a separate thing. In this way, their lives become tethered to the mountain and all it kindles in them. It is the mountain that is doing this to me, they cry. It is the mountain that makes me feel this way. They fall in love. They hate you. They pound on you in despair. Sometimes they die, and those who are left to grieve blame you. To be a mountain is to stir the untamed, unnameable longings of others simply by existing. To be a mountain means to be seen for miles and miles and also to hold secrets that few can penetrate.
to be a mountain means to have a peak that only the very strongest can summit. To be a mountain is to be a secret living in plain sight. The mountain, still and silent, shows you the secret beneath the secret. I am you, says the mountain. You are me. But to know this, you must bear the unbearable. You must feel the vastness of your longing. You must feel it fully, all the way to your breaking. The mountain is the beckoning of death. It is an invitation to lose yourself in its fathomless mass. As it juts upwards into the sky that was made exactly big enough to hold it, the mountain beckons you into the contours of your own life. Until you do this, there will be a part of you that can never rest. Whether you look or whether you look away, it is the same. Whether you climb or walk away, it is the same. As long as you think you are the looker, the climber, the adventurer, the failure, you will be looking, climbing, seeking, failing. Until you stop climbing and start becoming, you will know only a life of unconsummated yearning. To become the mountain, though, you must know it. You must understand the mountain so fully that it finally reveals its name. Only then can you become it. And once you become it, you forget the name. Because there is no need to remember something that you already are. This, I realize, is the final ending to the story of the Odyssey. But it is so simple so anticlimactic that Homer, a master storyteller, refused to reveal it. This is because to reveal it is to end the story forever. And there is so much poignancy in the story. It is, after all, why we came here, to this place that has been slowed and stretched into linear time, into countless and thens. The real ending I see now is that Odysseus was home already. He was home the entire time. But we cannot know that until we are ready to be truly done with it, to close the covers of the book for the last time. Because once you reach that particular ending, there is no need to read it again, no need to follow with delight and horror and sadness and joy the capricious wills of fate the tension goes out of the plot. The plot itself dissolves. You read, bemused, feeling nothing more than a vague wondering of what all the fuss is about. We came here to live the plot. That's it. How beautiful, simple, how wonderful is that? My cat's name was Murphy. I called him my Buddha kitty little knowing how fitting that name actually was, little knowing how it would be him, finally, who led me into enlightenment. I lost him eight months ago, and I know I will never see him again. He was the reason I came to this planet. I wanted, needed, had to know the softness of his fur, the emerald glow of his eyes, the way it would feel to have him curled next to me as a fire crackled in the grate, 
as the world outside lay cloaked in snow and cold and stillness. I yearned with all of the power of my soul to know what it would be like to touch his softness as I busied myself with the small doings of the day. And so I incarnated. That moment was it, reader. It was the culmination, the reason for this grand adventure of my life. My daughter didn't have a name. I never knew it. But I do know this. I came here because I had to know what she would feel like growing inside of me. She taught me how to walk slowly the mountain paths. She taught me to love my body as it stretched and grew to carry her. And at the last, she taught me how to grieve. How beautiful, how simple, how wonderful is that?